This podcast is presented to you by the Young Adults Ministry of Faith Chapel San Diego. To find out more, please visit faithchapelsd.com. Last week, we, we started a brand new, fresh series on the gospel of Mark, and we're, we're calling it Marked because we're believing that not only will this gospel enrich your understanding of who Christ is, but that it would also mark your life, and that some of the nutrients that we extract from the text would really be beneficial for you. So I hope that you are engaging with us. If you haven't read Mark chapter 1 yet, I would encourage you to read Mark chapter 1. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1 for a little bit of time because I am planning to not rush through this. And I, I'll be honest with you, I always am tempted to do that. I'm tempted to come in here and say, all right, guys, we're going into the next chapter or the next thing and think that there's going to be some excitement about that. But that's not my intention. My intention is not to get through the gospel uh, fast. My intention is to take our time and go story by story, extracting the nutrients and, and really letting the Holy Spirit minister to you. And sometimes there is a whole lot of punch packed into a very small portion of Scripture, and I, I don't want to do that an injustice by blazing too, through it too quickly, so I'd rather be a little bit more patient, and that's the plan for tonight. So last week, we got through several verses and kind of kicked off the intro of what we're doing, but tonight, we're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 1, verse 9, so you can come along with me there. And we're going to talk about baptism and power tonight. Baptism and power. We left off with John the Baptist's announcement that someone is coming. And this someone is going to be mightier than he is. His sandal strap, he's not even going to be worthy to latch it. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then verse 9 reads like this. It says, one day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and John baptized him in the Jordan River. So this is obviously this incredible story of Jesus' baptism. I love that Mark, he wastes no time getting right into the meaty stuff in his gospel. He, he doesn't set the stage very much. He doesn't give us a lot of deep context. He's like, by the way, Jesus, he's the servant. He's, he's amazing. He's the king of the world. He's awesome. And, and he showed up on the scene. And when he showed up on the scene, he, this is what John said. And John prepared the way for him. And boom, he gets baptized. And let's just get right into the meat. And he just jumped right into the, to the good stuff. Have you ever watched a movie like that? I like both kinds of movies. I like movies that really take a long time setting up the storyline and building the characters, and you kind of fall more in love with the characters that way, and you kind of just uh, get more enamored with the storyline, but then eventually at some point it's got to pick up. And then other movies aren't that way. It's like scene one, boom, and it just takes you right into some big battle or something that uh, you normally you don't know the characters, you don't know what's happening, you don't know where the storyline, you don't know what they're fighting for, or whatever it is, but it just jumps right into it. So neither is right nor wrong. They're just different. And so Mark chooses jump right into this bad boy. So Jesus comes from Galilee, uh, Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptizes him in the Jordan River. Now the Jordan River is a phenomenal landmark. Naaman had washed away his leprosy there. Elijah and Elisha both had crossed supernaturally on dry ground. We're talking a river that at some points of the year is literally flowing, is massive and huge, and, and supernaturally these men, it was parted and they walked across it on dry ground. It was after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that the Israelites crossed the Jordan in order to take possession of the promised land in Joshua chapter 3. 
This river carried a symbolic connotation of national renewal and the fulfillment of God's work among them. So this is a very, very significant place. It wasn't like, oh, they went to this random river and just decided to do A, B, and C. No, this is a symbolic place that has a rich history of God doing significant things with people. It's a very, very significant location. How appropriate that uh, in the past they were crossing into this river to come into a fulfillment of what God was planning to do for the nation of Israel. And now Jesus, when you consider that he's about to launch his earthly ministry, he gets baptized in that same river. So I love it. He's just coming into the situation. He's just showing up on the scene. He's about to start his earthly ministry at 30 years of age. And when he gets there, he goes there, and that's the spot where he gets water baptized. So the blessing that came from being led through the Jordan in the past is now a drop in the bucket considering the blessing of what is about to take place in the Jordan River this day. So the Jordan River has certainly seen some remarkable things in the past, but now it's getting to a, 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 how do I say this? It's like a monumental moment that no one has ever seen before. And it may not be something wildly supernatural like the, like a parting or anything like that, but they are experiencing something so supernatural because it is the baptism of the Messiah coming and announcing, hey, it's game time. The Father's giving me the green light. It's time to do what I've been waiting to do. And the Messiah is about to pour forth an incredible ministry. It's crucial to remember that Jesus was not being water baptized for the forgiveness of sin because he was indeed sinless. His baptism gave approval of John's ministry and his message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message John the Baptist was preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And people were coming from all over to see this wild man in the desert, in the wilderness, baptizing people unto repentance and, and unto the Lord. And Jesus comes and he goes to get water baptized, but not for a remission of sin. But he does it as, a, as an approval of John's ministry to set an example. And he's, he's acting as a dedication of his own ministry which is about to begin, and Jesus is identifying with the people that he came to save. He's modeling what to do and how to live, showcasing for this present moment the decision to turn from our sins and follow his example, which he would later fulfill or fully demonstrate and prepare the way for through the cross. So water baptism for you and I is a way of identifying with the cross. I don't know if anybody's ever taught that to you, but you gotta, you gotta catch this because when I first got water baptized, nobody told me anything really about the cross. I just saw it as, they, they would say this expression, you probably heard this a thousand times if you've been in church world at all. You probably heard, it, it's an it's a outward expression of something that's happening inwardly. Ever heard that? That's what I was told when I got water baptized. God's doing something on the inside of you, and water baptism is an outward expression of obedience to God of what he's doing inside you in inwardly. And I was like, oh, okay, makes sense. I kind of got it. But if I wish somebody would have taken me and said, just as Jesus went to the cross and died on the cross and was buried in the tomb but resurrected from the tomb, so you and I go into a watery grave, 
But we come out of that watery grave resurrected, just as Jesus did. And we walk in a newness of life. We walk out of obedience to him. It's our cross. It's our way of saying, I don't care who knows it, but I choose to pick up my cross daily henceforth. I'm walking in obedience to God. I choose to lay my life down that I would walk in resurrected power, just as Jesus did. And now Jesus is actually doing this. It's almost a dress rehearsal for the cross later in life by choosing to submit to John's baptism. Now check out this next portion of scripture here. This is huge. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. The moment that Jesus rose up out of the water, John saw the heavenly realm split open, and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and rested upon him. Everyone say, like a dove. At the same time, a voice spoke from heaven saying, you are my son, my cherished one, and my greatest delight is in you. There's a whole lot happening in this short couple of verses, and this is where we're going to camp out. John sees the heavenly realm split open, or as other contexts would say, the heavens parting. And keep in mind, I want you to keep in mind the reality of heaven here. Like, we, we get into this this thought that heaven is this far distant place somewhere off in the universe on some star somewhere, and one day we die and we get to float away onto a cloud that takes us to some place far out in the universe, and that's where heaven is. And heaven is, is so present. It's so here, just behind the natural veil that you and I live in every single day. Heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, we read all throughout Scripture. Heaven is not far away. It's the kingdom realm of God. And so in this moment, if you can envision it, they are at a, a river, the River Jordan, and there's beautiful trees, and there's water, and it's like, it's just this gorgeous scene. But then all of a sudden, it's like the veil is peeled back, and you're able to peek into the spiritual world and get a greater understanding of what's happening in the dimension just behind the veil. In this moment, the triune God, one God eternally existent in three persons, the Father who is announcing from heaven his, his beloved, or the Jesus' beloved identity. He's announcing from him how proud he is of him. Jesus, who's there in the physical form, in the water, being baptized by John. And then the Holy Spirit, who is descending upon him like a dove. We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit within this text of Scripture right here, our very triune God, eternally existent within three persons, active and present, but also working together in unison. Very beautiful picture right here that Mark gives us. He sees it split open and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and resting upon Jesus. John's gospel comments that he remained upon him. He was the one who, who pointed that out in John's account of this very thing. He said the Holy Spirit didn't just, just come upon him, but the Holy Spirit remained upon him. He alighted upon Jesus and remained upon him. You see, the Holy Spirit was, was coming and resting upon Jesus like a dove. Now, it doesn't necessarily that he necessarily was a dove, and I know we love to use that context, and there is a lot of similarities as to why when we see the dove, we can liken it to the Holy Spirit. But in the, in the text, it says it alighted upon him, and he looked like a dove. That was John's perspective and John's description, which is very, very interesting. Now, you could tie this all the way back. There's some great revelation found in, in Scripture when you research the dove, and one of the most profound ones is 
when the, when the earth, in relation to what we're talking about here, when the earth way back in Noah's day, when the earth the, was flooded, it was like earth's baptism. It was like a cleansing of the earth from sin as it was filled with water. And after a certain amount of time, when, when, the, when the waters were starting to, to reside, and it was Noah who sent a dove out on multiple occasions, and the dove would come back, and he would send it out, and the dove would come back, until eventually the dove came back and had an olive branch in his mouth. And it was then that Noah knew that the waters had subsided enough that they were able to go and find dry land. So it's just this beautiful imagery of the dove showing up and the cleansing of, the, of sin taking place upon the planet. And Jesus shows up and the Holy Spirit alights upon him and remains upon him in the form of a dove or as a dove. And, and the, the launch of Jesus' ministry, whose ultimate climactic peak was going to be the remission of sin for all mankind, for those who would want it. It's such a beautiful imagery right there. I love that. I love that Noah had this dove, and he comes back with an olive branch, this sign of peace that we even still use today, peace among nations. Such a beautiful imagery. The dove not only symbolizes gentleness, innocence, grace, and purity due to its color and its demeanor, but in the days of the law, the dove was also a means of sacrifice for sins. So the dove was also a means of sacrifice for sin under the Mosaic law. Picture of Jesus's empowerment, anointing for earthly ministry when he would become the great sacrifice of our sin and that it was the dove that would alight upon him. I love this. All this is happening at the very beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. Can you see how you and I having the end of the text and kind of knowing the majority of the story, we're able to fast forward to the cross and fast forward to the resurrection and go, oh, this is super beautiful, I see it. But in the moment, can you see how there's these details that are taking place that if you didn't have a prophetic eye, you wouldn't see it. You would just think like, oh, like well, the Holy Spirit was alighting upon him. What does that even mean? I don't get it. I don't understand. Until you have a, a, a greater pan out and see from a wider perspective of what God is doing. Friends, I just want to encourage you. God is so detailed. God is so detailed. He is the master chess player, and sometimes things mean things even when you don't realize it. And you got to be able to have an eye to follow the breadcrumbs that are dropped in your life in order to discover what God is or is not saying to you. Now, I'm not saying that every little thing that happens is symbolic or is God speaking to you. But I also think that much of the time God is speaking to you through certain things and we shouldn't disregard it. So we need to learn to have an acute ear and, and hear the voice of the Lord more clearly and develop relationship with him, beginning to understand what he's saying and what he means and how his language works and, and, and develop an intimacy with him so that we can grow in our understanding of what he is saying. Because to somebody else, it might have just been an insignificant baptism, but little did they know that this was a pinnacle point in the history of mankind. He would become the great sacrifice. Dr. Brian Simmons comments this. He says, The Lord Jesus was buried in baptism, symbolically into death like the Jordan River, so that he might minister not in the natural way of men, but in the way of the resurrection power through the Holy Spirit. So he's, he's getting this power that he could walk about in ministry, moving in power all the days of his life. 
This connects this thought back to Isaiah's prophetic word found all the way back in Isaiah 42. I'll show it to you real fast here. He says this in the New King James. Behold, my servant, notice the capital S, he's speaking to Jesus. Behold, my servant, Jesus, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. It's this beautiful prophetic picture of Jesus long ago when Isaiah is prophesying and he's speaking about this great servant, this anointed servant that's going to show up on the scene. And we know this to be Jesus, the anointed one, whom the Holy Spirit will be upon and that he would bring forth justice. There's this wonderful imagery that we get from a story I've heard several times. And I just love the imagery of the dove, like just knowing, uh, just knowing the dove, just knowing the Holy Spirit allotted upon him in this manner. And, and Pastor Bill Johnson speaks of it like this. He says, it's so interesting. If, if a dove were to literally come and land upon your shoulder, you know, how would you walk about life? And the answer is that you would take every single step with the dove in mind. Have you ever had a bird on your shoulder? You can't just act all like, you know, crazy as you just like mope around. I don't know who, who walks like that. Maybe I walk like that. I don't know. Just really like bouncy. But you can't do that or it's going to fly away, obviously. So you take every step with care. You take every step with caution. You take every step with the dove in mind upon your shoulder. And that's just a, a beautiful understanding of how we should walk about our life. It's every step. It's every place we go. It's every time we come to church, and it's every time we go home. It's when you wake up to go to work. It's when you have a conversation with your spouse. It's when your kids just spilled something all over the floor and how you react in that moment. It's all of these different things and how you see yourself and you understand the dove is on my shoulder. It's the Holy Spirit of God walking with you throughout life, guiding you, helping you, being an advocate, one who comes alongside you to help, one who is there to encourage you, to provoke you, to convict you, just like Jesus. Jesus, to enable you to walk in power just like Jesus. Amen? Always being conscientious of the dove. In Mark's gospel, you'll discover it's wildly action-packed, showcasing much of Jesus' supernatural ministry, something he didn't do until he was anointed with power when the Holy Spirit remained upon him. He did this to display to us that what he does, we can do. Like, Jesus didn't go around moving in the supernatural apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Because then it wouldn't be fair for you or me. Because we would look at the things that Jesus did when he heals the sick and he cleanses the leper and he casts out devils and he walks on water and he quiets the storms. And when he does all these things, we'd go, that's not fair. You're Jesus. You get to do that stuff. And Jesus would look right back at you and me and say, I did all of this under the same power that you have. The power of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus ministers and raises the dead, we're able to know that the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells inside you and I. And we can therefore do the same thing. And that's why Jesus can command us and tell us, hey, greater things you're going to do than what I did because I'm going to the Father. And we don't get to sit back and go, wait a second, I don't know how this is going to happen. How am I going to do that? He's going to say, you have the dove. You have the same spirit residing upon you. That same power rests on you. So go and walk as I walked. Because he did it under that same power. We have the same power, Romans 8.11 tells us. It's the same one. Not the cheap clearance rack version of it. We got the same deal. It's phenomenal. He wants us to walk in power. He wants us to do it from a place of beloved identity. I can't shake that, and I'm still 
getting reports from people about how, how that revelation of beloved identity is rocking their world, just as it's still rocking mine. I, the more I hear about it, the more I study it, the more I listen to podcasts about it, the more I envelop it into my world, the more that I think about it, the more I realize, man, this is, this is it, man. If we, if we talk about nothing else, this is, this is it. It's interwoven into everything. And Selena in the room tonight even texting me about what God's still awakening it in your heart with that revelation. I just love it. And it's simply this. You're his beloved. He's crazy in love with you. He absolutely loves you. So speaking about walking in power, we're talking about walking in power in correlation with beloved identity. If we're walking in power without fully understanding why we have the power, we become dangerous. If we walk in power without understanding why we walk in power, we can become dangerous. For Jesus, the power and the affirmation is coming at the same time. The Holy Spirit is alighting upon him. This anointing is coming on him. This power is coming upon him. And then the Father is also speaking about his beloved identity in the same motion. Let's look at it one more time. It's right here. And the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and rested upon Jesus. And at the same time, what? The same time, a voice from heaven saying, You are my son, my cherished one, and my greatest delight is in you. This rewinds all the way back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. You can look that up on your own time. But I love this. It's the voice of affirmation. It's the Father honoring the Son, Jesus, reinforcing his beloved identity. He's reinforcing him. He's telling him, you're my cherished one. Another version would say, but you're my beloved. You are my beloved. My greatest delight is in you, beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. He's reinforcing beloved identity when the power comes. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like the power from the, from the Holy Spirit is coming upon Jesus, and he's saying, I can trust you with this power now because you're my beloved. Because you know you, you can operate in this degree of power. You can start your ministry, and the demons are going to be obedient to the power that you walk in, and the cancerous tumors are going to fall off when you pray, and the dead are going to be raised, and there's going to be an authority that you're going to carry over the elements, and that's because you know who you are. You're my son, and I'm so proud of you. Perhaps the most significant takeaway from Jesus' baptism is this. It's displayed beloved identity. Like if you got nothing else from the whole deal, it was this. Displayed beloved identity. I love that. He looked at Jesus and said, man, (laughs) I love you. Now Jesus hadn't even done anything supernatural yet. He hadn't raised any dead people. No blind eyes were open. No demons were cast out. No storms were calm. But he's already walking in full acceptance and the delight of the Father. He's already been walking in intimacy with the Father for 30 years and abstaining from all kinds of immorality. He's still sinless. He's still perfect. And that was enough for the Father. He said, man, you're my beloved. You strived to be close to me. And I love that. You put great effort into pleasing me and being near to me, and I love that. This proves, check this out, this proves that in order of importance, who you are influences how you live, which precedes what you'll do. 
Who you are influences how you live, which precedes what you'll do. It all comes from knowing who you are. And when you understand who you are, it is going to affect how you live your life. And all of the actions that you take in life, what you do, is going to be from that perspective. Does that make sense? You track with me on that? How you, what you do, how you act, what, how you respond in a difficult situation, when your boss is chewing you out and you're frustrated, or when you get a flat tire on the side of the road, or you check your bank account and you thought there was going to be more money and there was a bunch of fees that were on there from some ridiculous thing that happened a long time ago, and you're like, what are all these fees? Like, and you get frustrated in that moment. How you react in those moments is going to make all the difference in the world. My dog got sprayed in the face by a skunk last night, and how we reacted in the moment made all the difference in the world. We could have easily been like, oh, why are you so curious? Always looking, sticking your nose where it shouldn't be. Don't you know? We could have got all mad and all frustrated, but instead we were moved with compassion, and we just doused his face in all kinds of tomato sauce (laughs) and some other skunk stuff. And then guess what? He smells great today. He's actually cleaner than he normally is. Okay, so... You get my point. It's how you react in those moments, and then what you do is going to be from that place, which makes all the difference. The power and the affirmation coming at the same time, the power and why you have the power is huge. Let me tell you a quick story. So the other day, my daughter dropped her phone in the toilet. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. (laughs) I have another story about something else I dropped in the toilet. That's another story for another day. But my daughter drops her phone in the toilet, and she comes out very innocently, and she says, "Um, I did something bad. (laughs) We're like, what? What happened? She said, I dropped my phone in the toilet. We're like, what? So I run in there, and I'm like, oh, it's on. It's playing a little, like, you know, kids' YouTube video in the toilet. And I'm like, oh, man. And I know you won't. This isn't like the iPhones, like, really nice where it's, oh, no big deal. You can go scuba diving with it. No, this is like a dinky old phone, and it's not going to last last long, right? So I remember in my training from old school days, you got to get that guy out of there ASAP and you got to get the power off. So I reach my hand in the toilet, gross, I know, and I pull it out, take off the top and I turn it off real fast and then I rip out the battery as quickly as I possibly can, disconnecting it from its power source. Now check out the illustration. If you're active in power, but you fall into some nasty waters you'll become dangerous and certainly short-circuit. I tell you, I could preach anything. I'll just tell you right now. If you're active in power, but you fall into some nasty waters, you'll become dangerous and certainly short-circuit. But God has designed us to function in power, just like the phone. It's designed to function in power. Without power, it's a paperweight. God has designed you and I to function in power. We need to be connected to the source of power, but first, he has to get us out of the nasty waters. He has to clean us up. He has to suck out all of the residue of our poor decisions, and when we're ready to function how we were designed to function once again, he'll activate the power once again within us. This is essentially a beautiful picture of like what happens. I remember just like cleaning this all up and I was thinking about it going, oh my gosh, this is going to preach. And I didn't think about it it fitting within the context of what we're talking about tonight, but what a perfect fit. We get ourselves into some nasty waters and you think God's going to let you move in power because we don't understand beloved identity. Let me, tell, let me help you. As a young Christian who did not understand his beloved identity, it was the mercy of God not to let me operate in a degree of power. 
Because if I would have been operating in a degree of power that I was crying out for, stuff that I read in the scriptures, stuff that I heard from some heroes of the faith in revival old times, I was excited about it. I wanted God to utilize me in that, in that arena, but I didn't understand beloved identity. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know why I needed to function in that power. I can give you some answers, and maybe they were partly correct, but it was coming from a poisoned heart. And God, in his mercy, would not allow me to function in that power, because if I did, it would short-circuit me. He had to get the, the nasty water out of my life. He had to clean that junk out of me. He had to suck out all of that residue. So sometimes we talk about beloved identity in here, and you're like, Josiah, I get it. No problem. Talk about something cool like the supernatural. Talk about something really cool like miracles. Talk about something really cool like authority and all this stuff. I am talking to you about those things. But if you can't get beloved identity, you don't know why you're supposed to function in this stuff. If we can't understand who our Father is and his approval for us before we ever move in those things, we'll move into a works-based mindset, and we're always going to be trying to pull another prettier rabbit out of the hat in order to keep the people ooing and awing. And he doesn't want that for us. He wants us to walk in a beloved identity that's so secure that we say, God, if I never did anything supernatural at all, but I knew that you loved me, I would walk in that all day. I would enjoy you, enjoy your presence, enjoy your goodness. And then when God sees that in our life, he's finally like, I've sucked out all of the nasty water or the little baggie of rice that we put it in. You know what I'm talking about? Little baggie of rice, sucked out all the water, and now you're good. And now I could put the power back in you, which is the battery. Get that back in you so that you could function as you were designed. Hello. Anybody? All three of us. Awesome. The only difference between us and Jesus is that Jesus never fell into the nasty waters. He was always marked with beloved identity and ready for his power. But even he had to wait 30 years before he was anointed. If you think about it, can you imagine Jesus? He's 25 years old, and he's like, Father, I'm sinless. I'm perfect. Let's go. Let's shake the world. And the Father's like, not yet. Jesus is 28. He's like, let's go. Let's do this. I'm ready. I'm ready. I haven't sinned. Not one time. I'm so ready. The Father's like, not yet. How long we got to wait? I don't know about you, but how long do we got to wait? And we're talking about perfect, sinless Jesus. <laughs> Phenomenal. The point is, is I would rather wait to be ready and allow my time of ministry to my family and my friends and the power that we walk in and all of the things he's designed for us to function in, our destiny. I would rather wait until the perfect moment where I could do that to the fullest extent and to the greatest degree of impact than to jump the gun and not be ready and short circuit. Power, yes. Beloved identity, first. Of all the things that the Father could have announced from heaven in this pivotal moment, he simply tells Jesus, I love you, son. You make me so happy. Of all the things he could have told him, he chooses to tell him, I love you, son. You make me so happy. That's what he said. All these people are gathered. He could have said, this is the Messiah and he's going to blow it up. Everybody slow clap. Like he could have totally did that. But instead, he just says, this is my son. Whew. Jesus, you make me so proud. 
go get them. Brian, why don't you come on up? <sighs> There's freedom in this if you'll see it for you tonight. There's freedom in this. Stop beating yourself up because you don't think that you make him happy. Stop beating yourself up because you think that you don't give enough, you don't serve enough, you don't pray enough, you don't read enough, you don't worship enough, you're not good enough, and your report card is less and less impressive. And you beat yourself up again and again and again. Friend, I'm here to tell you tonight that he just wants your heart. That it doesn't matter if you strike out. It doesn't matter if you get up to bat and you can't even have the courage to stay in the batter's box. If your heart is in the right place, that's all he wants is your heart. And he will begin to affirm you again and again. And it will do wonders in your world. I believe he looks at you and I believe he looks at me. And I believe he just says, Josiah, I love you, son. You make me so happy. And is there anything else that you would really want? Because I'll be honest, there was things that I used to want. And, and me just making my papa in heaven happy, knowing he was pleased with me. If I'm honest, that really isn't what I wanted. I'm like, yeah, God, I want to make you happy and do all that too, but I also want a profound ministry. Yeah, God, I want to make you happy, but I also want my own name to be really well known. Yeah, God, I want to make you happy, but I also want a lot of money. My own prestige, my own this, my own that. God had to suck all that nasty water out of my life to where the greatest affirmation I could hear from him was him looking at me telling me, I love you. You make me so happy. And for that to be so satisfying to me, for that to be the only thing I sit back and go, oh, that's all I needed. I feel like I've come so far in just learning that. Jesus hadn't done anything super crazy. And the Father's like, way to go. Make me so happy. I love you. Friends, tonight I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you to receive grace to make him happy. I want to pray for you to receive grace to get freedom from the progress reports. I want this to so mark you that you would stop checking the score and being frustrated with yourself that you just can't get it right and choosing to just disregard God because you're convinced he's up there with lightning bolts ready to hurl them at you because you just stink and you can't get it right. And that is not the case. Is there conviction? Yes. Does it mean we go on sinning so that grace may abound? No. Does it mean that there's adjustments we need to make in our world in order to get some things right so that we can to do our best to honor God and create a way for more presence in our life and to influence people into a greater dimension of their walk with God? Absolutely. From a place of beloved identity, not for his approval. From 
a place of beloved identity. Next week, we'll get into some radical stuff that Jesus begins to launch into at the very beginning of his ministry and some significant stuff that takes place. But can you see the beautiful imagery that Mark brings out at the beginning of his gospel? He gets right to the point. Here's the Messiah. We've been waiting for him. And guess what? Before he does anything, all the miracles I'm going to tell you about, all the supernatural, the Father's already so pleased with him. What's your story? What's he saying about you tonight? Father, tonight I thank you that you see us through the lens of Jesus, the lens of the cross. You look at us and you don't see us still sitting in the bottom of the toilet. You look at us and you see us cleaned and you see us in this perfected state because of Jesus and what he's done in our life. For every single person that has made you Lord and Savior, God, you see us totally different. We're your sons and daughters. So if there's any person that's watching this tonight, any person within the sound of my voice, and your heart's not right with Jesus, and, and you just you can't seem to figure it all out, and you just keep getting more and more frustrated, I'm here to tell you that freedom is about walking from beloved identity. It's about you recognizing how much he loves you. He's crazy about you. And if you'll accept that, if you'll receive that, if you'll allow God to deposit that within your world, your life will never be the same. You can begin to walk in a degree of freedom that will absolutely walk, rock your world. And it all begins with a prayer. Maybe you need to pray this prayer. I'll lead you in it tonight. Say, King Jesus, I want you to be exactly that. King of my life. You're not an appetizer. You're not a side dish. You're the main course. I put you center stage. Come blazing into my world. Free me from striving. Allow me to rest in your arms. I want to know what beloved identity is. I want to know how much you love me. So show me be Lord of my life. I give you everything. In Jesus' name.